You may be seated as we turn our attention to our, God, uh, to our sermon text today from Romans chapter 1. In Romans 1, we read, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be a, an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of God in power, according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be his saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Now this is the beginning of Paul's letter to the Christians in Rome. And this letter to the Romans is one of the most influential and consequential of all Paul's writings. Here, as in so many other letters, and probably as in many sermons that you've heard here, Paul says those familiar words, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. But he says a lot that we don't say at the beginning of sermons. All of that stuff about how Paul was called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets and the holy scriptures, concerning his son who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power. All of that is a sort of preface to Paul's letters. And here in Romans, Paul uses all of that to preview what he's going to talk about. Now, we could dive into any one of those lines that Paul just said. But today, with Christmas coming up, with the children's message you just heard, we are going to dive into the line where Paul says, Jesus descended from David according to the flesh. This is such an important moment. And I think you probably, if you're like me, read right past it. Because when you read he descended from David according to the flesh, you probably think the descended from David part is the important one or the main point that Paul is making. According to the flesh just explains what Paul means. But I don't think that's entirely true here. Jesus descended from David, yes, like I descended from a man named Phil. But according to the flesh is of such great importance to what Paul has to say because it's, it begins this contrast that he's going to set up between God and man, between flesh and spirit. In fact, it begins a contrast which he's going to explore throughout the entirety of this letter to the Christians in Rome. Throughout, Paul uses the flesh, Jesus' body and Hours to explain some of the most complicated and challenging aspects of the life of faith. And if we read right past this moment, we're going to miss where Paul is going. Now, admittedly, the incarnation might not be an exciting topic for you. You might hear that we're going to talk about a dense theological topic like the Incarnation and groan a little bit on the inside. And I, I understand if that's, your, your, if that's your response. 
Uh, the theological topics like this rarely get your heart racing, rarely get people excited. But I believe what Paul is laying out here in Romans should be exciting to us. At very least, it should lead us to wonder, to marvel, to awe at the work of God, the plan of God for our salvation. And maybe, just maybe, if I do my work right by the end of today, your heart will beat, your bodily heart will beat just a little faster. So as I said, we're going to spend much of our time in Romans, but in this letter to the Romans, it's worth noting right out the gate, the flesh is almost a bad word. Flesh, in Paul's theology and in his description throughout Romans, is constantly related to negative things. Paul says in Romans 7 that sin dwells in his flesh. And that sin that dwells in his flesh, Paul says, is what does evil in him. Which means if, if Paul didn't have flesh, he wouldn't have sin. And if he didn't have sin, if he didn't have flesh in the first place, he wouldn't do evil things seemingly at all. Now, in fact, he goes on to say, there's nothing good in my flesh. It's, it's devoid of anything good. And it's so corrupt that Paul is, mere sentences later, willing to call his entire body a body of death. Paul contrasts all of this with the law of God, which isn't fleshy, it's not physical, it's spiritual, and it is so good in Romans. But the problem Paul lays out is the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh. I'm sold under sin, and the sin in me, the flesh in me, weakens the law. The law might be good. I might know the law. I might want to do the law, but the flesh has made the law impotent to do what the law should do, such that now, as a person setting my mind on the flesh is death, and for those in the world, unfortunately, so often the mind is set on the flesh. Now, all of this to, in summary, say Paul has almost nothing good to say about the flesh in Romans. But I highlight all of this to draw out the fact that this thoroughly negative description of the flesh should make Jesus' incarnation even more amazing. It means that Jesus is taking into himself, upon himself, something inherently problematic. It's, if, think about it this way. Not many people go out and buy a car knowing it has problems. You buy the car, probably used, and you find out the problems that it has later when you get home, or 10 months later as it breaks down, and then it breaks down again, and then it breaks down again, and you keep dumping money into it, wondering when the end is going to come, right? My wife can tell horror stories about her first car in this regard. But, and, and this is, it's worth admitting, some people do buy that car that breaks down, that's broken down, intending to fix it, right? Car restoration, car conservation, preservation, that's a thing. And I think we might get behind the idea 
that Jesus is buying the car, the flesh, intending to fix it. That might make a certain amount of sense to us. It might, it might sound like a good solution to this puzzle. Why does Jesus take on something inherently problematic? But what I'd like to, to make clear is the metaphor really does break down because when car nuts buy cars intending to fix up that old muscle car and make it beautiful, they, they're buying something that has problems, but the problems are outside of them. Yes, they might spend money. Yes, they might sacrifice time. Yes, they're taking on risk. But that risk is all outside of the person who's buying the car. You might say that Jesus taking on flesh is more like the doctor who injects a deadly disease into himself knowing that disease will kill him. The doctor hopes to cure the disease, right? But he knows if he doesn't, it will kill him. See, Jesus taking on flesh is different. Jesus knows this flesh is filled with sin, and sin leads to death. Jesus knows this will kill him, but he takes it on anyway to fix the problems of the flesh and of sin and of death. Ultimately for Jesus, it wasn't just a risk he was taking on, the potential to avoid the problems. It was a sacrifice he was making. And Paul makes it his mission throughout Romans to explore why, why Jesus would do such a thing. And I think you could start by answering that question in, in, a, in a particular way. But again, we're going to find out it's, it's unsatisfying or it doesn't answer the question fully, even if it's true. Taking on the incarnation, taking on flesh, kind of is like making something real. Here's what I mean. Growing up, you hear about the difficulty of parenting. You hear about the stress and anxieties, the struggles that you might face as a parent, the sleepless nights, but you don't know what it's like until you live it. Makes a certain sense, right? Or maybe to take a more recent example, uh, how many have heard about this chat GPT? Anybody heard about chat GPT? No, oh man, this is even worse than eight o'clock. I have my work set out for me. Well, so chat GPT is, is another example of something that you only understand when you live with it. It's, it's an AI software that's been developed put out into the public. You can go online and talk with ChatGPT even now. And in the past, we've heard about AI. We've heard about how consequential it will be and how important it will be and influential it will be. But in the last two weeks or so, since this has been put out into the public, this computer program, people have been marveling at what the future of AI might be. It's a computer system which can mimic human writing. 
and you chat back and forth with it, and you can have conversations with it, and that doesn't sound that impressive. But then you, you learn that it can generate, <coughs> excuse me, you learn that it can generate computer code, and you can say, give me a computer program that can do these things, and it'll try to do it, and you can say, no, I didn't really mean that, I mean this and it'll try to come closer. And you can say, no, not quite that way, do this instead, and it'll come even closer. And it really does seem to be responding to what you're asking, doing what you're telling it to do. Or the pastor I heard who said, I put in the lectionary readings for the weekend. I just told it we were reading Romans 1 and, and Matthew 1, and, and I asked it to prepare my sermon for me, and it did, and it was good. I was tempted to use it. Now, in case you're wondering, I did not do that for today. But these, this program has been found to be usable at a high level for many things. Teachers are saying that kids are turning in chat GPT created papers on topics that have been computer generated based on internet training, like the internet worth of data at this computer program's fingertips, it generates ideas from the moment. And people are saying this is mind-blowing how powerful this thing is going to be, so much so that they're comparing the change in the future from AI to the change that we have now from cell phones, or the change to our world with cars or electricity. This is the tip of the iceberg people are saying, this one program. You can go check it out after the sermon. But my point is, sometimes you only understand something. You only realize it when you live with it, when you see it with your own eyes, when it becomes real to you. The incarnation, even our sin, is like that. Because Paul can say sin is terrible. I'm enmeshed in sin. I cannot resist the sin in my heart. It keeps cropping up even though I fight it. And you tell that to a kid and they say, sin's not that big of a deal. I don't have that much trouble with sin. You tell that to an adult and sometimes that's the response you get. But then you live it and you try to resist it and you try to live out the commandments and you try to follow God well and then you realize how true Paul's words are. The incarnation is the same. God's love for us takes physical form in Jesus. It becomes real to us. As Colossians 2 would say, in Christ, all the fullness of God dwells bodily. It's made real. So as Jesus heals, as he teaches, as he preaches, as he reaches out, as he loves, we understand who God is for the first time fully. And the longer Jesus lives, the more true that statement becomes. Knowing Jesus is knowing God. But, and this is so important, incarnation is even more than that. Because it doesn't just show us a fact which was already true. It doesn't just show us the fact of God's love that was already true in the Old Testament, and we now just understand it better. Incarnation changes things for Jesus and for us. It creates a new fact, a new reality in the world. Paul says in Romans chapter 8 
by sending his son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, God condemned sin in the flesh. Such that at the incarnation, Jesus takes sin into his flesh. And pause and think about that for a moment. That means perfection took on imperfection. That means that the good the highest good in the, in the entire universe took evil into himself. Life itself took on death. Love took on hate. And we could go on and on highlighting the way that all of these things happened, the change that happened for Jesus and for us. But all of this fundamentally was so that Jesus could solve these problems of imperfection, evil, and death at the cross, where where he died in the flesh. And the death he died, as Paul says, he died to sin once for all, such that the life he lives, he lives to God. And now, we who have been baptized into Christ are baptized into his death, such that the sin in us is condemned too, and that our lives can be lived to him, too. This means that as you put on Christ at your, at your baptism, though sin may be in your body, its condemnation no longer has weight over you. That's Romans 8.1. To be clear, throughout I've been quoting Romans a lot. <laughs> if you want to catch up on all the many times that I have, read through Romans 6, 7, and 8 especially. But all of this leads us who now look at the, at the incarnation from this side of history to say with Paul, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord for his taking on flesh means a new wondrous reality for us. With all of this in mind, since we started with the beginning of Romans, let's conclude in a prayer from the very end of Romans. Please pray with me. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to the gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed, to the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.